Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the House impeachment vote, with all Republicans signing on to an investigation of President Biden, even though there is absolutely no evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, while on the other hand, it is clear that Republicans are doing Trump's bidding of petty payback for his impeachments, which were based on real facts and evidence. Joining us is David Redlorsk, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. His latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Then we'll look into how Hungary's crooked despot Viktor Orban is blackmailing the EU, holding up Ukraine's entry along with a 78 billion euro military and economic aid package after the EU paid him a 10 billion dollar euro bribe. Joining us is R. Daniel Kellerman, McCourt Chair at the School of Public Policy at Georgetown University as well as a Professor of Law at Georgetown Law. He's the author of Eurolegalism, The Transformation of Law and Regulation in the European Union and The Rules of Federalism, Institutions and Regulatory Policies in the EU and Beyond. He is a senior associate in the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. Then finally, we'll assess the efforts by a bipartisan group of lawmakers and civil liberties groups to reform Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act now that the Pentagon and the House have voted for what amounts to a 16-month extension of Section 702 which was tucked into the Pentagon's 886 NDAA bill. Joining us is Elizabeth Goitin, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, which seeks to advance effective national security policies that respect constitutional values and the rule of law. Previously, she was counsel to Senator Feingold, chairman of of the Constitution Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. She is the author of The New Era of Secret Law, and has a new report at the Brennan Center, Protecting Americans from Warrantless Surveillance. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now, David Redlosk, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. And his latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Redlosk. Thanks, Ian. So, David, 
You're in Delaware, the home of the president and his family, who are now being hauled into a kind of, uh, some people call it a kangaroo court, but it is going to be an impeachment. Uh, they're going to go ahead now that they've voted the Republicans on en, en masse, voted for an impeachment inquiry, which presumably will lead to an impeachment. One of the congressmen was asked by a reporter about, you know, why are you doing this? And he more or less said, you know, Donald J. Trump. So that seems to be what it's about, isn't it? I mean, at least to my mind, it's, it's simply a case where the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is, was told by Trump uh, to do this, and he's done it. And, and this is payback. How does it strike you? Yeah, no, it's, it's basically about, um, it's about payback. It's about misdirection. It's about distraction. Uh, it's about doing anything possible to somehow make it look like uh, Joe Biden has done at least as bad, if not worse, than Donald Trump. You know, they can't really defend Donald Trump and some of the things he's done, but it's, and and so rather than bother trying to do that, the, the other way is to try to, um, uh, you know, is to try to get on voters' minds the idea that there's just something wrong with Joe Biden, something illegal, something illicit. And again, it's not about actually Democratic voters. It's not about Republican voters. They're pretty well locked into where they're locked in. It's about those folks who, for whatever reason, are just uncertain about what they think should happen in 2024. So if you can misdirect them, if you can keep the the discussion going in the media about somehow Joe Biden's done something, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors like, then you don't have to address the reality of Donald Trump. Well, there was a clip uh, that I saw recently on TV of Chip Roy, who's one of the, the Freedom Caucus conservatives, a Texas uh, Republican, and he was yelling <laughs> at his colleagues saying, we're a do-nothing house. What have we done? What have we achieved? What am I going to go back to my district and run on? What can I say that we've done? And to me, that's what this Congress is all about. It's all about culture wars with absolutely no achievements whatsoever. So do you think the public's figuring that out and that this is just well, another I, example of, an, as you say, it's just distraction? Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, I think the public is, I mean, a part of what they gain from doing this is if the public just gets disgusted, says a pox on both their houses and stays home. Because if people vote, Democrats are likely to win. If, if, you know, if sort of the, the less likely voter shows up. Um, but if people are just so fed up with everything, if they're fed up with the antics, the risk is very real that, um, uh, you know, the only people who show up are those who are most engaged. And right now, that's on the right. They, they can taste it. And the, the opportunity is there. So if, if you can muddy the waters, if you can ignore, you know, if you can get voters to ignore reality, ignore a good, uh, frankly, really good economy, ignore many of the other things that have been gotten done because you confuse them, then, then, then if you're on that side, you have a chance. Because I think if voters understand what's going on, they actually don't have a chance. But the 221 to 212 vote, it was surprising because 
now that they've lost George Santos, they've got a pretty narrow margin, uh, and yet they got everybody on board on the Republican side, uh, including Ken Buck of Colorado, who's yeah. made it clear that he thinks this whole thing is, is ridiculous and there's no evidence. But nevertheless, and you know, these so-called moderate Republicans out here in California right. also voted along with the, the so-called moderate Republicans in, yeah. in the state of New York. So why do you think they all did this? Why even Ken, yeah. I mean, particularly Ken Buck, who right. made it clear right, that... because he stood up, yeah. I, mm. it's, it's, I, I will admit, I, I was a bit surprised there weren't at least a couple of Republicans who peeled off of this. Um, as you mentioned, the, the people who are in Biden districts in New York, the people in, in California who barely won their seats in the first place, um, you know, I think the political calculation of them is absolutely a mess. They get they get slammed from the right if they don't do it. They risk um, more moderate voters if they do. But the calculation at this point is they're better off, you know, sort of strength in numbers than not. Now, the one thing I wonder about right now, this was authorizing the inquiry. And the primary thing that it does is presumably – gives subpoenas from the committee the force of the House as opposed to without an official inquiry. It's a big difference between doing this and basically doing it despite the Biden administration, which has been resisting subpoenas, um, and actually voting for impeachment. Those folks who are caught in those districts, those folks who really make up the the New Yorkers in particular who make up the you know, the extraordinarily narrow majority may have to do an awful lot more thinking if the actual impeachment resolution comes to the floor. I still suspect it would, you know, the Republicans would line up and pass it, but that's less certain right now because so far, you know, there really has been no evidence, no matter how they try to spin it. Well, but that's, <laughs> don't they have to come up with some evidence uh, in order to move it from an inquiry into an actual impeachment? Yeah, they would actually have to have counts, right? I mean, the actual impeachment would is like an indictment. And so the indictment has to actually tell the accused what they are accused of doing. And so presumably there have to be clear counts against the president, as well as some kind of evidence that backs those counts up. I think the the, the real challenge the Republicans face on this is that there just is you know, there's no there there in the context of high crimes and misdemeanors. Is is Biden guilty of caring about his son, Hunter? Yes, I suppose he is. He's guilty about being a father who's very worried for his, his wayward son. Uh, has Hunter Biden likely done things that um, uh, have put him in the position he's in for which he's been indicted? I suspect so. He's in some sense admitted it, that he's done things he shouldn't have done. Is there a nexus between what somebody's son does and, you know, their own actions, their own supposed high crimes and misdemeanors? That's what's completely missing here. Well, Jamie Raskin, who's the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, he said, quote, that, of course, is the whole purpose of the impeachment inquiry. There is not one particle linking Joe Biden to a crime, and yet they insist that there is going to be a Senate trial for impeachment of Joe Biden in the fall during the presidential campaign. So that's 
you think that's the plan? You know, just to oh, have I, an impeachment right before in the fall, right at the yeah. height of the 2024 election campaign, in order I mean, just to muddy the waters? And yeah. is that it? I, Congressman Raskin is exactly right. That's certainly the game plan. That's certainly the hope that they have, that they can, you know, get the, the media paying attention to, uh, you know, a, a, a trial in the Senate that would, you know, grab everybody's attention. And, you know, here's the thing, though, right? It, it might not turn out the way they think it would. Um, read Bill Clinton, for example, right? Um, even if the Senate were to go to trial, and I'm, I'm not convinced they would. I'm not convinced that, um, that Schumer, despite, you know, despite everything that suggests that the Senate would have to hold a trial, the timing of the trial, I think, is really entirely up to the Senate. So in other words, if they come up with a bunch of bogus counts and dress them up to make them look like there's some there there, and then they've turned that over to the Senate, uh, which is the procedure. The House makes the case and the Senate tries right. the case, right? So you're saying that Schumer can then you just sort of delay it till after the elections? I mean, that would, that would take a certain amount of guts that Democrats don't often show, right? But we know that all you know, history is essentially out the window at this point. I mean, it goes back to Merrick Garland and the Supreme Court nomination and the failure to actually act on the nomination. You know, the 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 mores, the the the, the ways of doing things. Um, I don't think we should just assume that things will proceed as they always have. Um, there is. There is no clear um, requirement that the Senate move immediately, right? The Constitution doesn't say anything about it. The Senate may have its own rules, but even those are, you know, <laughs> clearly malleable these days. And, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, I think it would ultimately be a political calculation. Are they better off, from the Democrat standpoint, are they better off holding a trial, putting on air, just how vacuous this is, or delaying it until after the election. I think ultimately it would be a political calculation at that point. Well, Mike Johnson, the new House Speaker, told reporters that we're not going to prejudice the outcome of this because we can't. It's not a political calculation. We're following <laughs> the law, and we are the rule of law team, and I'm going to hold to that. And then Tom Emma, the House Majority Whip, uh, said uh, that voting in favor of an impeachment inquiry does not equal impeachment. Right. So what are they doing, trying to cover their backsides here? Or, or yeah, no, it? absolutely. I mean, the, again, it, what they hope to get in the immediate term is create that uncertain, create that confusion in voters to put to make it look like there is something there that they haven't been able to show so far. Um, but... At the same time, they have to they have to mouth those words. I mean, we said it earlier in this conversation. They, there does have to be something put down on paper that seems like a viable argument for a high crime or misdemeanor. So they do have to kind of hedge it right at the moment, um, and they have to hedge it a little bit because of those those uh, folks who are in political trouble by being in Biden districts, again, talking specifically about the New York, California folks, 
Republicans who are at risk of losing the seats. So maybe this gives them slight cover. No, I didn't vote for impeachment. I simply voted to make sure that we know what's going on. We have all the information at our at our fingertips. Right. But of course, we know that Mike Johnson had a mantra going on for years in early in his political career that only began with Trump's in 2016. He kept mouthing the mantra that the yeah. founding fathers warned against a single party impeachment would be divisive. He kept saying that. And of course, he forgot the fact or didn't mention the fact that there'd been a single party impeachment of, of Bill Clinton. And now he's doing the same thing. But if you go back to Bill Clinton, Linda Tripp befriended Monica Lewinsky. Linda Tripp was the only Republican left over in the White House who was otherwise empty, uh, which is a huge mistake of <laughs> not yeah. to have purged the, all of them. Uh, shows you how they operate. So she got the, the blue dress and the, and the evidence. Now, the evidence was of a private sexual encounter, yeah. but still they had something, as pathetic as that right. was, they had something. Can't the Democrats say to the Republicans now, okay, you want to go ahead for an impeachment inquiry, it's got to be based upon some kind of reasonable suspicion, so just tell us what you have, you know, just anything. Why can't they do I, that? Well, they can They can do that, but the Republicans can, of course, ignore that. I mean, let's look at the, the Hunter Biden situation and the testifying question, Right. They've subpoenaed Hunter Biden to testify. Um, he says, absolutely, I'm, I'm willing to testify. It needs to be open testimony. You know? and, and Republicans initially were, you choose, and then, of course, backtrack, because an open testimony does them no good. Doing this in public does them no good because it just will show how um, honestly crazy this all is and how purely political it all is by requiring that Hunter Biden testify behind closed doors, what they hope to do, A, is, you know, use that testimony in ways that no one can really verify, and B, put him in the position where, you know, he he would be in jeopardy simply because it's not public. And I think that, I actually think Hunter Biden did the right thing showing up in Washington yesterday making the point that I'm, I will testify publicly and leaving it to the Republicans to sputter about that. Um, but again, yeah. it's, it's, it really ultimately is about creating confusion and uncertainty and somehow there must be something wrong, otherwise why would they be doing this? Well, speaking of sputtering, the, the House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, who's one of the ones that are fulminating along with coma, and threatening to hold Hunter Biden in criminal contempt for defying a subpoena. The subpoena hasn't happened, but they're threatening to subpoena him now that he said he wants a public hearing as opposed to a private one where they can rig the paperwork and alter the transcripts and do whatever they want, which they have a history of doing. So the idea that Jim Jordan is, is, <laughs> is the, the one that's making the threat of criminal contempt when Jim Jordan was the one who defied the January 6th subpoenas and right, still to yeah. this day has not testified and is clearly has uh, some problems with what happened on January the 6th, to say the least. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a mistake to look for consistency, of course, right? These are all political calculations, ultimately, and it's all, I, I mean, we are, we are 
we are in a world where, in particular, the Republicans have to play to this base that has really gone off the rails. And the idea that rule of law is involved, the idea that anything um, that uh, uh, you know that that the rules are the same for them as for everybody else. Just as is, you know, it's just no longer the case. I mean, look, everything's always been political in Washington, but the the we are at a we're at a time where folks really seem to believe there are no consequences to anything they say or anything they do, and yet it's it's a little weird to me because there have been electoral consequences for the Republicans ever since Donald Trump was elected, right? Negative electoral consequences pretty consistently, and yet they continue on the same path. I honestly find that somewhat puzzling. Well, David Redlosk, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed chatting with you, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Redlosk, who's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. His latest book is The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how Hungary's crooked despot Viktor Orban is blackmailing the EU, holding up Ukraine's entry along with $78 billion military and economic aid package after the EU paid him a 10 billion euro bribe. Behind the curtain Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is our Daniel Kellerman, who's the McCourt Chair at the School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, as well as a professor of law at Georgetown Law. He is the author of Eurolegalism, The Transformation of Law and Regulations in the European Union, and The Rules of Federalism, Institutions, and Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond. And he's a senior associate in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. Welcome to Background Briefing, uh, Daniel Kellerman. Nice to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dan. And as Orban, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader or autocrat, as many have described him, he's already gotten a 10 billion euro bribe from the EU to sort of trying to smooth the ruffled feathers as he grandstands now at the EU summit that's going to go on for the next two days. And what's at stake is Ukraine's membership in the EU and 78 billion euros in both military and humanitarian aid. So how did this happen? How did this guy get in this position to have so much leverage over the EU? Well, I think uh, a few things go into that. Uh, one thing is that m- many of the key EU decisions are still done by unanimous agreement of the 27 countries. Now, that's not true of all things. A lot of EU laws are passed by a kind of supermajority system, things like that. But on uh, questions to do with the EU budget and on questions to do with EU enlargement, 
uh, more broadly on a lot of foreign policy issues, they agree by unanimity. So that gives national leaders, if they're real rogues and willing to go against um, the others, uh, it gives them the ability to sort of uh, wield that veto or in this case to threaten extortion. So the background to what happened here is that after years of sort of appeasing Orban while he dismantled democracy in Hungary and thumbed his nose at various EU legal requirements, finally a year ago, they got tough for the first time and they suspended um, more than 30 billion of uh, EU funding from Hungary on these kind of rule of law grounds. And uh, so that was really a significant step and it was hurting his regime. But then coming into this summit, he basically started wielding extortion. And he said, well, either you release the money you've suspended from me, which I need to finance my corrupt regime, or else I'm going to veto funding for Ukraine. I'm going to veto the opening of accession talks with Ukraine, et cetera. And so yesterday, on completely fabricated grounds uh, that uh, no lawyer would take seriously, the commission agreed to release $10 billion of the money they had suspended. So that's the bribe you mentioned. Um, you know, hoping that or uh, that that would make Orban go long, and it looks like it, it worked to an extent in the sense that um, you know he's now uh, agreed to not block the opening of accession negotiations with Ukraine. So that went ahead; he abstained. But unfortunately, uh, this is very negative development for the future because basically they've shown that extortion works. And as I think any law enforcement agency would tell you, you know, if you pay off an extortionist, they'll just come back to extort you more later, which is exactly what Orban will do six months from now and, you know, again and again extorting them. But what's the fate of the $78 billion in military and economic aid to Ukraine? He still could hold that up. Yeah, well, that's still there. They're talking as we speak, Ian, and you know, that's going to be uh, the, the budget side of things will uh, be settled over the next two days. But I think uh, they're actually... I expect that to go ahead because, in fact, Orban couldn't quite have vetoed that because if he was really adamant about trying to veto the financial aid for Ukraine, there's another way they could have gone around him and essentially had the 26 countries sign a separate agreement to pool their money to fund Ukraine for the coming year without Orban. So that they always had a way around him. Whereas for the opening of the accession negotiations about Ukraine someday becoming a member of the EU, even though that's a much longer process, there he really did have a veto, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they've gotten around that uh, today, that was kind of the higher uh, hurdle to clear. So I expect that the money thing will also go through and that, you know, that'll be part of what the bribe bought them. But Dan, the fact that Putin, just in his annual address, or press conference, or whatever he wants to call it, said that there will be no peace in Ukraine until Russia reaches its goals, which are victory and oust Zelensky and to have Ukraine essentially become submissive to Russian demands and a puppet state. That's, I guess, encapsulates Putin's aims here. How is that message resonating with the EU? I mean, they've they got to figure out that this guy is coming for them. How else can you look at well, this? I mean, with the exception of Orban, who is in the back pocket of Putin and is you know, kind of tr- acting as a Trojan horse for Putin within the EU, if you leave him aside, I think the rest of the leaders of Europe 
you know, given their different foreign policy orientations and everything, they've been remarkably united in support for Ukraine. Of course, you know, some are less enthusiastic than others. But as a whole, um, the EU has maintained more unity in support of Ukraine than the U.S. has, where we're just one country and two political parties, right? But yet uh, we're very divided on the issue right now in Congress, right? As you know, so I think the EU, they do see Russia uh, as a threat, they do realize that this war is not just, you know, for Ukraine, but it's actually Ukraine sort of defending the strategic interests of Europe and the Western democracies more generally. So I think um, there, there is a lot of support and they will they're trying to show with the, the, this council session this weekend that they're going to sustain that support through the winter and into next year. So. What happens then inside of Hungary itself? I mean, he, Orban has taken over the media and taken over the judiciary and runs a kind of mafia state like Putin. And there's no question about his adulation of Putin or whatever you want to describe the relationship. I mean, he went all the way to Beijing to hang out with Putin and Xi Jinping. So there's no question about the fact that he's in Putin's pocket. But I find it hard to understand how the Hungarian people could support this guy. I mean, in 1956, the Russians came in in the most bloody fashion and shut down the Hungarian Revolution and murdered all kinds of people, and, and their tanks just rolled into Budapest. And you'd think that memory would be sufficient to wonder why their leader is in bed with the, with the Russians. Yeah, well, I mean, Orban's party... Uh, and Orban himself, they, he, he doesn't enjoy majority support in Hungary, but he has this rigged system where th- he does have a significant block of support, you know, over 30 percent, somewhere between 30, 40 percent uh, sort of supporting him in the country. Lots of other people are against him, but the opposition's divided. And he has such a grip on the economy and the state. And he uses that uh, you know, to prop up his regime uh, like you said, mafia state is the right term because he basically used his control of government to uh, sort of take over the whole economy as well. And uh, he, he dominates all the media. So especially when you get outside of the most educated kind of people in the capital and things, the kind of media messaging is really just a propaganda state. And uh, he uh, keeps a tight grip on things. So uh, I, I think... Uh, we're not likely to see him uh, going anywhere anytime soon. Well, but next door in Poland, you've had a major change from a right-wing authoritarian government got voted out by the people, and now there's a new government. So is that in any way resonating, or how do the Poles no. do it, and why can't the Hungarians do it? That's a great question, and uh, there's... Let's say it's a complicated answer, but I guess I'd say this, you know, Poland, I think we got lucky uh, in the sense that it was a very close run thing and had the ruling PIS party, had they managed to win again, that really would have spelled the end of democracy in Poland because th- this kind of democratic backsliding, dismantling democratic institutions, installing yourself as a kind of uh, elected autocrat, it's a, it tends to be a gradual process, Right. So the Polish regime was doing some of that, but they were five plus years behind Hungary and they hadn't managed to tilt the playing field 
so uh, decisively in their favor yet. And so the opposition was united under a strong leader. Uh, Polish civil society tends to be more active and mobilized than Hungarian. So all things came together for this uh, very fortunate win for the forces of democracy. Uh, but in Hungary, it's just gone past um, the tipping point now. You know, the, the Rubicon has been crossed where now, you know, they still have elections, but they are nothing close to free and fair elections. You know, there's a, I think when we can think of um, authoritarian regimes that hold elections, there's a kind of continuum from uh, situations where the elections are a complete joke and the opposition gets arrested or killed like Russia or Belarus. And then there's the... Uh, Systems like basically what we just had in Poland, where the ruling party was trying to move in an authoritarian direction, but the elections, even though they were a bit distorted, the opposition still had a real fair chance to win, and they did. And then there's kind of cases in between, like Turkey or Hungary, right, where uh, the it's not as bad as seen. There's people aren't being arrested or killed like in Russia to the same extent, but. uh, at the same time, the elections are not fair. The opposition can't really win, right? So uh, that that's where Hungary is, and I think the difference between Poland and Hungary is uh, Poland just dodged a bullet, really, with that uh, last election outcome. But across Europe itself, you've had the rise of uh, these right-wing populists in Italy and now in the Netherlands, and right-wing parties have gained in, in countries where you wouldn't expect them to be, like uh, in Sweden. And in Germany, mm-hmm. the uh, alternative for Deutschland, the, the AfD, they've gained seats. So there's something happening on a broader scale, and, and that is the merging of the center-right with the far-right. And it's also happening here in the United States. The Republican Party doesn't really have a center-right anymore. It doesn't seem. I mean, American politics are always based upon the center, the so-called sensible center, but there's no center mm-hmm. left, except maybe in the Democratic Party. So this is a phenomenon, both here in the United States. What is driving this? Well, uh, yeah, I think there are many, again, many factors behind that. I think partly what's uh, happened is that whether you're in the U.S. case where it's a two-party system and there was kind of a takeover by these far-right forces of the Republican Party, or if you're in the European multi-party systems where Maybe there's still separate far-right parties and center-right parties. But in either case, what's really happened is the kind of um, the sort of red lines of uh, non-cooperation with real extremists who violate core kind of values of constitutional democracy, liberalism. Um, those have been crossed where basically the center-right you know, kind of succumbed to this temptation where they saw growing uh, you know, sort of uh, social uh, growing support in society for kind of uh, far right anti-immigrant politics, things like that. And they said, OK, well, we need to do deals with these people because they're on the ascendance. And so instead of the sort of sensible center right that's committed to constitutional democracy, drawing firm red lines and saying we won't cooperate with forces that are um, uh, really a threat to democracy itself, Instead of doing that, they basically decided to throw their hat in with those forces, right, uh, just uh, in the hopes of uh, getting power. And so I think that that's you know, a profound danger when uh, because that means uh, that the Democratic center right has basically sold out the principles of democracy in the name of you know, gaining power in, in collaboration with these extremist forces.
So is this trend going to continue? Yeah, I think for the, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future, yeah, like for instance, next year in 2024, uh, there's European Parliament elections coming and uh, all the current polling, I mean, of course, it's, you know, some time off, but the current polling looks like the uh, far right forces are going to make big gains. Uh, in fact, they might emerge as the kind of third largest bloc in the parliament where they're currently more like the fifth largest. So uh, it looks like they're going to gain, as you said, the Netherlands, we have the kind of shock outcome. They haven't formed a government yet. But yeah, you could end up with the situation where basically far right figures are you know, in coalition governments or alone government in a, a few different European countries at the same time. And then, of course, they'll, they'll tend to support one another. So basically, it's a kind of cancer that is metastasizing, I'd say. And you mentioned the anti-immigrant uh, factor here in the gains of the right wing or the far right in Europe. It's also true here in the United States. I mean, you've got now the House and the Senate now holding up aid to Ukraine in order to build Trump's wall because Trump basically told Mike Johnson that he wants retribution. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a bit pathetic in a way, but that's what's happening. So is anti-immigrant fervor driving the far right in both the United States and in Europe? It's definitely one of, if not the uh, most salient kind of common issues on both sides uh, of the Atlantic, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's other issues uh, that you know, motivate uh, voters for these parties, but that's uh, really, I, I think, the, the strongest one. There's broader kind of backlash against globalization uh, and, and, and some forces like that, kind of economic concerns. But those are also tied in with the anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, kind of blaming outsiders for this you know, feeling of feeling left behind or whatnot. But are there any, is there any justification for the, these countries? I mean, for example, Dan, I, I like to watch um, Swedish series because I like the writing and acting. And all the bad guys... And this is a you know obviously a liberal country. All the bad guys are immigrants. So I know that's not a very scientific poll, but is that happening in Europe? That it's just simply not the integration with particularly people from Syria and, and other Islamic countries. Here's what I'd say. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think there's justification for it. But what I'd say is this: that maybe part of the mistake that mainstream parties in many countries made for years was that uh, they sort of try to depoliticize immigration issue in the sense uh, that they said, well, you know, th this is really a matter of international treaties we've signed on, you know, issues surrounding asylum and rights of ref UN refugee convention, and there's EU regulations. So they kind of, uh, the mainstream parties, in a sense, tried to put it beyond the realm of politics, right? And just say, well, this is just kind of a legal question and so then that gave an opening for some of these populists to say, see, they're all the same. They won't talk about this issue. And people had concerns you know, as the percent of immigrants in countries that uh, weren't accustomed to a lot of immigration are going up. And uh, it, it, some people had concerns or you might see as understandable about that. And uh, really the fact that this wasn't being discussed in an open way uh, created an opening. And then once the populace exploited that, then really what I think you've had happening is 
a kind of one-upsmanship where then, in a sort of overreaction, some of the mainstream parties then try to outdo each other and say, okay, well, yeah, we can also be tough on immigration. But then what happens is then, actually, when the political debate start in elections, like this happened in the Netherlands, um, when the mainstream parties then uh, start debating immigration nonstop, then they make this like the number one issue, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of, I know it sounds like a contradiction to what I was saying before, but they decide, okay, we're going to try to beat uh, the far right. We'll try to beat Wilders at his game. So that's like what Ruta, the outgoing prime minister, you know, his centrist party, they're saying, we'll be really tough on immigrants too. But then if you if you buy into that, then essentially, I think what you're pushing voters to think is, OK, well, wait, if this is the big issue now, why don't I vote for the real thing, the original, which is the builders far right? You know, why would I vote for the, you know, slightly toned down centrist version? And so I think they seeded the terrain too much now um, in these debates. And I think, you know, the smarter thing would be to you know, really address voters economic concerns and concerns you know, about uh, yeah, the changing position of their countries in the uh, global economy, that sort of thing, and uh, provide people with more uh, hope for their futures economically instead of just pinning everything on migrants. Well, Dan Kellerman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you, Ian, and uh, I'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Indeed. And again, I've been speaking with our Daniel Kellerman, who's a McCourt Chair at the School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, as well as a Professor of Law at Georgetown Law. He is the author of Illegalism: The Transformation of Law and Regulations in the European Union and the Rules of Federalism, Institutions and Regulatory Politics in the EU and Beyond. And he's a Senior Associate in the Europe, Russia and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a member of the Executive Committee of the European Union Studies Association. We're going to take a brief station break back with an assessment of the efforts by a bipartisan group of lawmakers and civil liberties groups to reform Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that was tucked into the Pentagon's $886 billion NDAA bill. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Elizabeth Goitin, who is the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, which seeks to advance effective national security policies that respect constitutional values and the rule of law. Previously, she was counsel to Senator Feingold, chairman of the Constitution Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and is the author of the New Era of Secret Law, and has a new report at the Brennan Center, Protecting Americans from Warrantless Surveillance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Elizabeth Goitin. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the, on Wednesday, the United States Senate passed a $886 billion military bill, the NDAA, that includes a four-month extension of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So they've sort of tucked that into a must-pass bill. 
And the vote, by the way, was 87 to 13. 13 one Democrats voted with it. So it goes to the House. The Progressive Caucus in the House said they're going to block it, but uh, they will need 146 votes to block it, and there are only 100 members in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So what happened then to your efforts and others' efforts to reform Section 702? Uh, Well, for one thing, the House actually did vote this morning on the NDAA. We did not get the 146 votes. We got 118 votes. So the NDAA passed with the extension in it. Uh, That's obviously a disappointment. There was absolutely no need for any short-term extension or any extension uh, at all of Section 702 because the way that uh, Section 702 works the surveillance operates under one-year certifications that are approved by the FISA court. Uh, and the law is pretty clear that even if Section 702 itself expires, that certification remains in place until it expires, which means that the government has until April anyway to, to conduct surveillance. So there was no need for this extension. Uh, not only that, but even though it looks like a four-month extension, it's actually a 16-month extension. Because between now and April, the government is scheduled to go back to the FISA court in spring and get another one-year certification. So so that will happen in early April before uh, the extension is over, and that will carry the government into April 2025. So this was a long-term extension masquerading as a short-term extension, and it was completely unnecessary. Uh, Having said that, the fight is definitely not over. Uh, None of us are going to sit around and wait for 16 months to put pressure on members of Congress to enact reform of Section 702. Uh, And members are galvanized on this issue. And there is broad and deep bipartisan support for reform and a strong reform bill that passed the House Judiciary Committee a couple of weeks ago. So I would say we we are well positioned to continue the fight. And are you talking about the Government Surveillance Reform Act of 2023, which was introduced by Ron Wyden and Mike Lee, a bipartisan bill, along with Warren Davidson and Zoe Lochran in the House? That's a terrific bill. That bill has not actually gone through committee at this point. Uh, The bill, the reform bill that went through committee is the Protect Liberty and End Warrantless Surveillance Act, uh, which is co-sponsored by uh, Andy Biggs and Jerry Nadler in, in the House. And that was marked up by the House Judiciary Committee a couple of weeks ago, and it was passed on a vote of 35 to 2, which is not something you see a lot in the, in the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, so it has broad support. Um, it is also a strong reform bill. It's not quite as comprehensive as uh, Senator Wyden and Senator Lee's bill, um, but it has some very, very strong reforms in it, including the most important one, which is a warrant requirement um, that applies before for the government can search uh, data that's collected under Section 702 for Americans' communication. Well, Andy Biggs and Jerry Nadler, they're, they're strange bedfellows. That's a pretty amazing coalition. I mean, there are not only strange bedfellows on this, there are a lot of bedfellows, if that, if that makes any sense. It's kind of a weird metaphor, but um, there, are, there is really the, the breadth and depth of bipartisan support for meaningful reform of Section 702 um, is really uh, like nothing else I've seen in my work on civil liberties issues over the past 15 years. So let's talk about the backdoor searches that are attendant with Section 702. 
of the Foreign, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which is, means when the National Security Agency surveils foreign actors, it's often them in conversation with Americans, and apparently the FBI performed more than 200,000 of these backdoor searches. Ex- explain what this procedure means. Sure. So Section 702 authorizes warrantless surveillance. And for that reason, it can only be targeted at foreigners overseas. It cannot be targeted at Americans. Um, But the surveillance ends up sweeping in a large volume of Americans' communications because Americans communicate with foreigners. Um, And if the government's intent were to spy on those Americans, it would have to get a warrant. So to prevent the government from using 702 as an end run around the Fourth Amendment, Congress required the government to minimize the retention and use of Americans' communications uh, and to certify to the FISA court on an annual basis that they are not using Section 702 to spy on Americans. So that's that's how it's supposed to work. But what is actually happening is that all of the agencies that get 702 data have procedures in place to uh, go searching through that data, specifically looking for the communications they're supposed to be minimizing, looking for Americans' uh, phone calls, text messages, and emails. And uh, what we learned over the last couple of years is, first of all, the FBI conducted, as you said, 200,000 of these backdoor searches in 2022 alone, has conducted 5 million of those searches just in the last, I think it's four years. And uh, and that, that these searches have included some really uh, shocking abuses, including searches for the communications of Black Lives Matter protesters, members of Congress, uh, in one instance, more than 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign, journalists, a local political party, and the list goes on. So this is why there is such a a clamor for reform uh, on both sides of the aisle. So what mechanism then could be in place that would prevent this abuse? Because... For example, I think the, just the other day, uh, President Biden sort of talked about a kind of pro-Putin caucus, how Putin's got to be really happy with the Republicans voting. If indeed there is such a thing as a pro-Putin caucus, I mean, if you go back, for example, several years back when Paul Ryan was the speaker, he was in conversation with Kevin McCarthy. And in this conversation, McCarthy said, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabacher and Donald Trump are on Putin's payroll, at which point Paul Ryan said to McCarthy, well, let's not talk about that. So <laughs> if there are people in our government that are in communication with Putin, including Trump himself, how do you find out about that stuff? And how much is the searching of congressmen about that target, or well, is it just yeah. simply mm-hmm. just a, an abuse of their privacy? Right. Well, what you don't want is for any administration to be able to abuse this power for political purposes. Um, and with these searches for members of Congress and for uh, a state court judge, a state senator, a local political party, um, you absolutely worry that, that this, is, this is being done for political purposes. The idea of a warrant requirement is that it prevents that. It puts a neutral party, uh, the, uh, you know, a magistrate or, or in some cases a FISA court, depending on the, the uh, investigation that's being conducted, um, it interposes them as a check against political abuse of foreign intelligence surveillance. Now, uh, if the government has probable cause that someone 
whoever that person may be, <laughs> if it's the president, um, is acting as an agent of a foreign power, that is a basis for the government to go to the FISA court and to get to show probable cause and to get an order that would allow them not just to do a backdoor search of Section 702 data, but to collect all of that person's communications. So you need to kind of walk that line between making it hard for the government to uh, conduct politically motivated uh, investigations uh, and making it possible for the government to actually do the surveillance it needs to do when someone is acting um, against the interests of this country. Um, and that is, that is what exists in the law. That, that is what the a warrant is for. That is what Title I of FISA is for in foreign intelligence cases. And the, the balance that has been struck is the probable cause, the probable cause showing. Um, and so uh, what we have been trying to do as, as advocates of reform of Section 702 is to make sure that the government has to make that showing uh, when it accesses Americans' private communications um, in the context of Section 702 data. But in the wake of Citizens United, in fact, at the time of Citizens United, the joint session of Congress, when President Obama addressed them, he warned about how Citizens United could invite in foreign money. And I think you probably recall that Alito, who was there in the chamber, mouthed, not true, but it seems to be it is true. And a lot of foreign money coming in from Russia, from Turkey and other countries have shown up in our politics. So what kind of regime would stop that? Is oh, that's, it, a because... whole other, <laughs> that's a whole other set of questions. And that, that, that doesn't really go... Uh, I, I think what you're talking about now is, is um, checks that would be outside of the system of surveillance. I mean, when you're talking about surveillance, you are talking about um, uncovering sort of uh, actions that violate um, existing law. Right. And I think what you're talking about is perhaps shoring up some of the legal protections that exist um, in terms of, of, you know, campaign financing and that sort of thing. And, and to be quite honest, that is sort of beyond my expertise. I have colleagues at the Brennan Center uh, who could talk about right. that for hours. <laughs> well, I would I would I would just want I would want to know, regardless of whether they're Democrats or Republicans, whether members of Congress were getting foreign money into their campaigns? And is there a mechanism to prevent that? And who would, who would monitor that? Yeah, again, I, I think that's, I mean, it's a, it's a worthwhile question to ask, but I'm, I'm not the person to answer it. I'm sorry. Okay. But it doesn't involve the work that you're doing on Section 702. It's, I, don't think, I don't think that directly implicates Section 702, um, except to the extent, again, if there is a member of Congress who is under investigation for somehow violating uh, campaign finance rules, whatever they may be, um, that that member of Congress is entitled to the protections of the Fourth Amendment, just like the rest of us. And so mm -hmm. uh, if, if the FBI wants to read that person's email, whether it's a member of Congress or whether it's you or whether it's me, um, they have to go to a judge and they have to show probable cause. Um, that, that is the best way to protect the, the sometimes competing, usually not honestly, but sometimes competing uh, interests in uh, our security and our liberties. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Elizabeth, the what's the next step here, given that you basically this four-month extension that's been rolled into the NDAA is in fact a 16-month extension. Yeah. What, well, uh, so, how are you going to marshal your forces here to come back in 16 months' time? 
well, I don't think we're going to wait for 60 months at all. And I, and I will say the silver lining here is that the opponents of reform um, could not acknowledge openly that they were seeking a 16-month extension. They didn't really want to tip their hands. And so they have uh, really made a big deal out of this April 19th, 2024 deadline. And in order to not look like hypocrites, um, they are going to have to, uh, you know, act like they think that reform, that a reauthorization needs to be passed before April 19th. So I think this spring we will see quite a bit of activity. Um, and certainly no matter what the opponents of reform want, um, those who want to see Section 702 reformed, and I would put in that category a majority of the members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, um, will be pushing very, very hard. Uh, we have a, a good bill that has been through committee that is ready to go to the floor. And I think you'll see a lot of pressure on uh, Speaker Johnson to bring the bill to the floor. Now, the speaker has said he wants to come up with some kind of compromise between that bill and the bill that's been offered by the House Intelligence Committee, which literally does the opposite of protecting Americans' freedoms. It expands surveillance massively. Uh, so he is looking to uh, find a compromise between protecting American civil liberties with a warrant and massively expanding surveillance in the U.S. Needless to say, there's no compromise. Uh, there's no compromise on our Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, there's not a middle ground that would satisfy either side here. So I think uh, I think that's a bit of a waste of time. And at some point, the uh, uh, speaker's going to have to choose uh, what bill he wants to bring to the floor. And I think, as I said before, the majority of his caucus and the majority of Congress is behind strong reform. Well, Elizabeth Goetine, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Elizabeth Goitin, who's the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, which seeks to advance effective national security policies that respect constitutional values and the rule of law. Previously, she was counsel to Senator Feingold, chairman of the Constitutional Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and is the author of The New Era of Secret Law, and has a new report at the Brennan Center, Protecting Americans from Warrantless Surveillance. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.